0: Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we examine the problem of vaccinating the world's population in the face of limited supply and the fact that the world's wealthy countries have, brought up, have bought up much of the available supply of vaccines. And in order to explore that issue, we're fortunate to have with us today two economists who've recently done a study of this problem, Selva Demirap and Sevcan Yeshintosh, two economists at Koch University in uh, Istanbul, who are co-authors of that Study. Selva Demiraub is Yapi Kredi Professor of Economics at Koch University. She was previously an economist at the Federal Reserve Board here in the US between 2000 and 2005, after which she joined the economics department at Koch. Over the past decade, she's had extensive interactions with several central banks, including the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and the Central Bank of Turkey. Her research and views on the Turkish economy have appeared in major international media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, and The Economist. And we're also fortunate to have with us today Dr. Sevcan Yeshintash, who is Assistant Professor of Economics and Finance at Koch University. She received her bachelor's degree in economics from Boazici, or Bosporus University, in 2006, her master's degree in economics from Bilkent University, also in Turkey, and her PhD in economics from Johns Hopkins University in 2016. During her doctoral studies, she worked as a consultant for the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, and for the World Bank. Her research on the er- is on the areas of uh, applied microfinance, international finance, and corporate finance, and has been published in journals such as the Journal of International Economics. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. So the Demirov and Sevchan Yeshvatash, and I and I hope I'm doing a reasonable job with your with your names.
1: Yeah, perfect. Thanks a lot for having us today here.
0: Great to have you both with us. So. You recently, as I mentioned in my introduction, you recently authored a study of the economic consequences of not vaccinating the entire world's population against COVID-19. Maybe you could just start by telling us how the study came about, who sponsored it, and uh, what you found.
2: Sure. So let me start first, and then I can pass it to uh, Sevjan. So... We started about one year ago when COVID became the new normal for our lives because just around March when it hit Turkey and about in about two weeks they closed schools and we started teaching remotely, we just couldn't think about anything else but COVID-19 and we just couldn't focus on any other research either. So at that point we said, okay, why don't we put together... A research paper where we calculate the costs of COVID 19 for the Turkish economy. And our goal at that point was to come up with the most optimal lockdown policy because that was the main topic back then. Should you save lives or should you save economies? If you consider a lockdown, how long should be the lockdown? So those were the issues at that time. And we wanted to come up with a model. Back then, so we started, everybody, almost all economists started working on this topic. And we wanted to borrow models, epidemiological models, and look at the way the virus spreads to the economy and how certain lockdowns by closing certain sectors is going to affect supply channel and the demand channel. So our research for the Turkish economy highlighted the role of Exports for a small open economy like Turkey, because it wasn't just the domestic dynamics in Turkey, but how much the foreign demand for Turkish exports will be affected that would uh, contribute to total costs of the pandemic for the Turkish economy. So we started thinking about the spillovers of this effect on advanced economies, because if Turkey cannot export, let's say, steel to Germany, then It's not just going to affect Turkish economy because our export revenue is declining, but it's also going to affect German economy because if they cannot buy that steel from Turkey, they won't be able to produce cars. So we said, OK, maybe these international interactions is going to add a whole new dimension to this study. And at that point, I mean, this is around November of last year, the news about the first vaccine came out. And soon it was found out that manufacturing and the distribution of vaccine is not going to be very straightforward. And at the beginning, there's simply not going to be enough supply. So at that point, we said, why don't we look at the costs of inequitable distribution of vaccine? And in particular, how much would advanced economies bear if their trade partners are not vaccinated? So... That brought us to the paper that uh, we are talking about today, and it's an academic paper. We have to make certain assumptions because there is still tremendous uncertainty about the course of the pandemic and the manufacturing and the inoculation programs. So under certain assumptions, let's say, rich countries vaccinate half of the, mm, vaccine all their population in about four months in the first four months of 2021. And emerging markets and developing economies, the lower income countries can only vaccinate half their population for the entire 12 months of 2021. In this scenario, we calculated a total cost of about $3.8 trillion. And what is more important, more striking is that even the advanced economies who are going to get vaccinated and eliminate the pandemic at home they will still bear about half of that cost, so which is about $1.9 trillion. So that is an eye-opener in our view because it shows the urgency to manufacture more vaccines and distribute it to the rest of the world. About the details, let me now uh, pass the word to Sevjan, and she can tell us the details about our work.
0: Great, Sevjan.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot.
1: Uh... Uh, I would like to dig deeper and I would like to mention about the extent of the sectoral cost because of the unequitable distribution of the global uh, vaccines. So uh, thanks to the work done by epidemiologists and also economists, we know that uh, there is a sectoral heterogeneity on the infection part. The jobs, uh, occupations, sectors where close proximity is required um, are going to have high infection rates. Uh, I mean that certain sectors are going to be affected more than other sectors. Uh, to be specific, by nature, services sector is affected more relative to uh, manufacturing sector because services sector, is, sector requires close pro- proximity. As Salvan mentioned, there is also another economic dimension re- related to international trade and production networks that works through highly complex uh, sector linkages. Uh, Therefore, uh, we want to bring that and then want to uh, marry these two dimensions, uh, sectoral heterogeneity in infection dynamics and sectoral heterogeneity in trade and production networks. Uh, And to compute sectoral economic costs, we have an SIR model, uh, susceptible infected recovered model, that we borrowed it from the epidemiologists. We bring a very rich data from every country we do it for 65 countries and 35 sectors. We have our zeros basic reproduction numbers uh, for every country and then we combine uh, that epidemiological site using uh, real-time data on infection dynamics from John Hopkins University with uh, uh, economic data on trade and production networks that uh, comes from the OECD on multi-sector, multi-country economic linkages uh, that tells us that how each sector is in each country imports and export with other sectors in other countries. So we try to estimate, as Sadwan mentioned, several scenarios and several different specifications. And among all, in the most realistic one, as Sadwan mentioned, where in the first four months of 2021, advanced economies are fully vaccinated, whereas emerging market and developing economies vaccinate only half of their population by 2021. Uh, And we provided some key findings, Uh, countries and sectors um, that have stronger trade linkages with unvaccinated counterparts are more severely affected and such uh, trade linkages refer to a decline in their exports because emerging markets are not fully recovered and they cannot demand as much exports from advanced economies and a decline in the imports of final and intermediate goods from emerging market countries because they are still suffering from the pandemic conditions. And when we look at the big picture, we know we see that emerging markets and developing economies are clearly hit harder. Uh, but even advanced economies are hardly hit from the prolonged pandemic. Specifically, within advanced, within emerging market developing economies, the sectoral costs are the highest uh, for those sectors that are more severely affected from the domestic pandemic conditions, which are these sectors. They are accommodation and food services, arts and entertainment and real estate. And the economic cost uh, in these sectors uh, primarily reflected decline in demand due to the fear factor in these countries where most people engage in uh, voluntarily social distancing. So uh, this is a similar picture that we have been actually seeing throughout 2020 since the outbreak of pandemic. And uh, if you want to return to advanced economies that are vaccinated at a faster pace, according to our assumption, we have a completely different picture. Uh, Because the domestic threat from the pandemic is eliminated in these countries, thanks to universal vaccination within their borders, the sectors that suffer from the highest economic costs are those that are more exposed to trade uh, with unvaccinated countries, either directly or through highly complex input and output linkages. Which are these sectors? They are agriculture and fishing, wholesale and retail, or basic metal industries. And in order to further highlight the uh, role of uh, trade openness in explaining the extent of COVID-related sectoral economic costs, we wanted to compare two countries within each group of vaccinated and unvaccinated countries. And among uh, vaccinated ones, advanced economies, we observed that the sectoral costs are generally higher in Netherlands compared to U.S. since Netherlands is more open to trade relative to the United States. And similarly, when we compare the sectoral costs for two uh, emerging market and developing economies, Turkey is more open to trade relative to Brazil. So sectoral costs borne by Turkey are generally higher than those of Brazil. So I don't want to go into further details. I think it's uh, more than enough to convey the key message related to the extent of the economic costs related with the inequitable distribution of the global covid uh, vaccines
0: right so thank you very much for that um, and of course you know your study obviously does focus primarily on the question of the economic costs to the rest of the world of not vaccinating you know, countries that at the moment probably have no vaccine, probably would have a difficult time buying it, you know, their cost issues, Uh, supply issues, of course, are still an issue, although more vaccines are coming online. But so, you know, there's also a moral side to this, right? I mean, what is the, I mean, you've essentially offered a rationale for the wealthy countries to you know, be involved in the project of vaccinating everybody around the world. But that's also a moral question. And I wonder how you think about that. I mean, maybe economists aren't supposed to think about the moral side of things so much if they're not Albert Hirschman or Adam Smith. But uh, uh, I wonder what you would say about, you know, the moral side of of this question.
2: So... Equitable distribution of vaccines is primarily a moral responsibility, and there is absolutely no question about that. But we also know that moral motives may not be sufficient to generate enough funds in initiatives such as COVAX to manufacture and distribute more vaccines. Because what is the COVAX initiative? Let's just remind the listeners. So very short time ago, uh, this was a facility uh, that was put together in order to generate enough funding to manufacture 2 billion doses of vaccines to uh, vaccinate 20% of the world population. And they said the total costs of producing 2 billion doses of vaccines is about $38 billion. However, only $11 billion was collected in the fund. So clearly the moral... uh, story, moral incentives are not strong enough uh, to uh, motivate the rich world to contribute to this facility. So what we wanted to do was to highlight that it is actually for the economic benefit of the rich countries to contribute to such efforts. That this is not an act of generosity, but an act of economic rationality. Because on the one hand, we are talking about 27 billion dollars that is needed in order to manufacture uh, enough vaccines to inoculate 20% of the population. On the other hand, we're talking about billions and trillions of dollars that the rich countries have to bear if their trade partners are not vaccinated. So yes, we are all behind the moral argument, but as economists, we are also trying to contribute to these efforts by showing that there is a strong economic motivation behind investing in a facility like COVAX. Because if your trade partners are not vaccinated, you won't be able to export as much goods and services to your uh, partners. And also, you won't be able to import these intermediate goods that you use, for example, steel that you buy from Turkey in order to buy, in order to uh, uh, produce the car Uh, that you uh, put together at home. So if you cannot, if these supply chains, this is a technical concept, but you buy an input in order to produce the final good at home. If there are disruptions in these supply chains, then it is going to affect your production in uh, a vaccinated country as well. And you won't be able to shield yourself from the pandemic even though you vaccinate your local population. So fairness, I mean, we try to avoid the word fairness and we say equitable distribution of vaccines because it's a tricky concept. I mean, in economics, we have this notion called Pareto optimality, which means that if you start from an initial distribution of assets, a Pareto optimal adjustment requires all parties to gain from that. So if one party gains and the other party loses, it's not going to be optimal and so, status quo is going to be harder to change. So, when there's a limited supply of vaccines, it's hard to make an economic argument to say rich countries should hand in their limited vaccine supply to the poorer countries before they even vaccinate themselves. But by calculating the economic costs of inequitable distribution of vaccines, we illustrate that it is actually Pareto optimal to move. It's a pretty optimal move for the rich countries to invest in a facility like COVAX because they will earn more in terms of export revenues and effective supply chains. So if sufficient funds are collected to manufacture and distribute more vaccines, then all countries will gain both from a moral and an economic perspective.
0: I mean, this is something that uh, the G7 is ad- addressing this very day, right? And exactly. uh, Joe Biden uh, has announced that he's going to contribute $4 billion from the United States uh, for this reason. I mean, there's also a public health dimension to this uh issue, right? Um, We know that the more the virus replicates, the more opportunities it has to mutate, and it may become more transmissible or more likely to cause serious illness in the process. And as international travel revives, these strains of the virus will circulate around the world, as have the UK and South African variants. So do you think people understand that they are protecting themselves by getting everybody else? vaccinated? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about the adequacy of the messaging that's coming out of the US administration, for example, about the effectiveness really of the vaccines. But this is another question that I think, in fact, isn't really part really of the public discussion just yet.
2: This is a very critical topic indeed. And thanks for bringing this up. Uh, The new variants make the rollout of mass vaccinations more complicated, and it also raises question marks about the effectiveness of existing vaccines. And in the absence of global and synchronous vaccinations, there's a real risk that the new variants of the virus will arrive, and it will also challenge how well the existing vaccines will work. So your point should definitely be highlighted to emphasize the mutual interest in contributing the efforts such as COVAX. I need to emphasize this one more time, because in our paper, we haven't incorporated the variants into our analysis because clearly the pandemic outlook is changing very rapidly and it's hard to foresee and incorporate everything into academic work. I mean, we tried to put it together in a very short period of time. Nevertheless, we can't catch up with the uh, mutations and the variants. But the variance of COVID-19 uh, virus in the presence of inequitable vaccine distribution would clearly increase the economic costs that we have estimated because so long as there are variants and the vaccine is less effective, then there should be even stronger incentives for the rich world to uh, utilize the existing formula for the vaccine and vaccinate the global population as soon as possible. Because if the pandemic is prolonged, Everybody is going to suffer. It's not just going to be the unvaccinated, poorer-income countries, but vaccinated countries, unfortunately, won't be able to eliminate the economic drag. Yes, the health problem might be minimized, but as you've pointed out, even the health problem may uh, uh, continue for a longer period of time. And more importantly, the economic costs are going to be unbearable, unfortunately.
0: Um. So I guess the other question I wanted to ask here is, um, you know, what are the prospects of actually getting everybody in the world vaccinated? Uh, as I think I already mentioned, more vaccines are coming online. I mean, we already have the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. A Russian vaccine has been approved. China is using one. Uh, there's some more, I think, questions about the safety and efficacy of the Chinese vaccine. But in any case, um, the FDA here in the United States seems likely to, uh, soon to approve the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which uh, is a one-shot vaccine, which is a good thing. Uh, and there are, of course, all these problems with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines in the sense that they require two shots. I shouldn't say they're problems. They are hurdles, uh, You know that make the situation more complicated. They require two shots, and they have to be refrigerated at very low temperatures. That makes it hard for them to be distributed at all in the poorer and warmer parts of the world. So, by when do you think it's reasonable to expect that um, you know everybody in the world could be vaccinated? I mean, you mentioned there are some manufacturing assumptions you have to make, and. There are lots of uncertainties in this process, but um, can you give us a sense of how you think this is going to play out?
1: Sure. Uh, as you uh, stated, there are many unknowns ahead of us uh, regarding the course of pandemic. But to start with, I think I should give you the recent numbers regarding the vaccine rollout. Uh, yes, to, as of today, the biggest vaccination campaign in history is underway. And according to data uh, collected by the COVID-19 vaccine tracker of Bloomberg, uh, as of today, around 200 billion doses have been administered across uh, 87 countries. And the latest rate was roughly 6.5 billion doses a day. But uh, I think the speed of vaccination rollouts is uh, rather slow. And the world is still far away from the global herd immunity in order to Uh, minimize the economic cost that we have mentioned uh, so far. And if we want to win our fight against the pandemic, uh, herd immunity should be achieved in all countries across the globe, as Salva stated. Uh, And because, as we always underline that, nobody will be safe until everyone is safe. Uh, And I think at this point, um, global cooperation and solidarity will be the only chance for us to defeat the virus everywhere. And it it is essential, I think, to start a sustainable global global recovery. Uh, And uh, related to this, EU, which is the largest uh, donor to world health organization, uh, took an important step uh, that that with its member states, EU launched uh, Team Europe and announced a global recovery package of 38.5 billion euros. Uh, this aims to help uh, partners across the world uh, uh, address the immediate health emergency and humanitarian needs, uh, as well as strengthen the uh, health system and support uh, economic recovery and social protection. Uh, specifically, Team Europe has been announced over 850 million euros for COVAX facility. Uh, that Salva mentioned before, to help secure 1.3 billion doses of vaccination for uh, 92 low and uh, middle-income countries, uh, which are expected to receive vaccination at a later stage, unfortunately, by the end of the year, and support of uh, EU's efforts to make the COVID-19 vaccines a global public good. Um Uh, In order to uh, enable, uh, and we have to talk about uh, the the manufacturing of the uh, vaccines, right? So uh, in order to enable individual uh, vaccine manufacturers to make the necessary investments uh, in production facilities, as well as to speed up the development and the production of safe and effective vaccines, EU Commission uh, so far has signed advanced purchase agreements and has secured 2.3 2.3 billion doses of vaccines. And I think uh, these advanced purchase agreements uh, might play an important role in the equitable distribution of vaccines in the sense that uh, they offer the EU member states the possibility to redirect or donate part of their vaccines to other countries until COVAX facility is able to uh, supply uh, large enough volumes directly uh, from companies. Uh, Yes, besides many unknowns in the course of pandemic, uh, unfortunately, there are many challenges we face in the equitable uh, global distribution of vaccines. Why this is the case? Because healthcare and procurement systems are fragile and underfunded, Uh, health workers are limited, unfortunately, we lack of uh, sufficient and appropriate uh, cold chain equipment, we lack of manufacturing capacity. And there are some export restrictions. And I think all these together seem to have a negative impact on the access to COVID-19 related technology. So uh, another great uh, challenge uh, might be, the I think, uh, is the manufacture of the vaccines uh, at a great global scale. And I believe intellectual property is a key factor uh, in building a framework that enables collaboration between the developers of the vaccines and the productions of the vaccines. Uh, How it might work? uh, Developers of vaccines can enter into the manufacturing agreements and they can transfer technology and expand production with their license. Uh, for example, uh, there is the possibility to grant mandatory uh, licenses, which are those granted by governments without the pa- uh, patent owners' consent. And this is a legitimate tool for the countries in need, uh, as they are in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, however, uh, some countries convey difficulties uh, with regard to the implementation of such flexibilities. Uh, so therefore, all countries in the world. Uh, need to get together and they have to be ready to discuss ways of overcoming these difficulties along the way of manufacturing and delivering the vaccines to where they are needed, right? And we know that, unfortunately, this won't be the last pandemic the world may have to deal in the near future. Uh, So uh, measures are highly needed that uh, preserve the incentives to innovate and invest into the research related uh, to health. And I think at this point, point, close uh, public and private cooperation and intellectual prepared are both key elements of this equation that we need to solve properly, right? And last point, I would like to emphasize is that uh, governments should act to counter misinformation, disinformation and hesitancy regarding COVID-19 vaccines, and they should be transparent about their safety and possible side effects. And the government should engage with local communities to ensure a rapid and universal vaccination within their borders. And I think um, this is one of the important aspects that the local governments should uh, put an emphasis on It.
0: Yes, thank you. That's a very important point, I think, for us here in the United States, as you probably know as well. I mean, there are certain communities that have historical reasons to be you know, skeptical about the 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 way the medical community operates in the United States. But there's also a lot of concern about uh, the effectiveness, again, of the messaging and, and, you know, what people are saying about the effectiveness of the vaccines, uh, as these new variants have arrived, you know, the, that has kind of undermined the clear message that, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were in the 90 percent range for forestalling, you know, the likelihood, the possibility really of serious illness. Um, and it's true that, you know, the UK variant is perhaps a little less, you know, effectively addressed by the vaccines we have, but it still basically keeps people from getting very sick and dying so you know we have an issue about getting the message out and i don't know how uh, big a problem this is in other parts of the world but that's obviously a major sort of concern so um you know the larger issue or another issue that <clears throat> you get into here uh i think is this whole question of you know what's been kind of called vaccine nationalism and the kind of geopolitical dimension of this uh of this set of issues. Uh, you know, Russia and China have both developed vaccines. They're sending them out to you know, other parts of the world and you know, using this as a kind of indication of their scientific prowess and their prestige as countries. And uh, I, I saw yesterday that even Cuba has now developed its own vaccine, which is kind of ex- astonishing for such a small and relatively poor country. Um, And, you know, why did they do that? Well, they probably wanted to be autonomous, you know, uh, when it came to vaccinating their own populations. So I wonder if you could, uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron mentioned this yesterday when he talked about uh, the G7 stance towards, uh, you know, the support for for the COVAX initiative. Uh, And I wonder how you see this kind of geopolitical dimension playing out. And, you know, apropos Turkey, where's Turkey getting its... Uh, vaccines from, from Russia, from the United States, from China. the UK, China.
1: Yeah. Actually, yeah. Well, that no would one. be
0: interesting. Tell, tell uh, us about that.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, we are not experts on this issue. We are not sure. political scientists. Sure. So uh, I won't be able to give deep insights regarding this uh, right. political dimension of this issue, but... Uh, I definitely agree with what you stated. Uh, we know that nationalism and competition against uh, against neighbor prevails uh, in the times of crisis, and now uh, we are facing a global crisis of this magnitude with several dimensions like never seen before. So that. Uh, all countries in the world need to vaccine at the same time uh, in order to vaccine their entire population, right? Uh, And uh, as you stated at the uh, very beginning of the pandemic, uh, United States and China uh, led uh, vaccine competition, vaccine race, not Russia. But uh, we know that there is a will of Putin to show that uh, Russia remains in the battle of this scientific uh, power, right? Uh, So, I think the geopolitical dimension is indeed central in this race uh, to save the entire planet from COVID-19. And I think for the great powers, the stakes are enormous. The skins in the game are really huge. Uh, and uh, Putin's announcements, uh, early announcement than expected, I believe, reflects reflected his desire to put Russia back in this scientific uh uh, power uh, race uh, that is being played out mainly between the United States and China. And yes, we know that China is still behind the United States, but I think uh, it is not uh, surprising that uh, Russians call their vaccine Suputnik Five, which aims to remind uh, Suputnik moment uh, Yes. I know, uh, you, you know it, but for the li- listeners, uh, the Sputnik moment that uh, refers to what happened in, back in 1957 uh, when the Russians launched Sputnik 1, the first man-made, uh, satellite launched around the Earth. And at the, at the time, uh, the Soviet Union was far behind the United States, uh, in, uh, space technology. But by uh, launching this uh, satellite, uh, I think they had managed to give Americans the feeling that their country had been passed in the space race. Uh, and and we know that uh, President Putin announced the approval after less than two months of human testing, which is way earlier than we expected. I think the speed at which uh, Russia uh, moved to roll uh, out vaccines makes us question that, uh, uh, Moscow is putting a national prestige before solid science. But uh, on the other hand, we know that European countries uh, would like to be uh, able to prove that research on COVID is the symbol of a, a multilateralism that needs to be considered in the fight against COVID-19. Uh, therefore, European politicians have been constantly... Underlying the fol- following message from the very uh, b- uh, starting point of the COVID 19 outbreak. what they uh, the, the message is the following As we search for efficiency and promptness, we didn't bunch one inch in quality and safety. We Europeans do not compete against anyone. We don't sacrifice quality for the sex- sake of propaganda. So, this clearly shows us the way how these two different countries approach. Uh, to the uh, usage of the vaccine rollout in the in the uh, fight against the COVID nineteen pandemic.
0: Silva, do you want to add anything? No. She's...
2: Sorry, I mean, uh, yes. So I was just on mute. I mean, yes. Vaccine nationalism is clearly uh, our focus. I mean, we in our work we just wanted to approach it from an economic point of view because. But we wanted to actually show the costs of vaccine nationalism and how it is going to hurt the nations and how focusing uh, just on your domestic gains in this global event is actually going to hurt you in the end. So, I mean, our prologue in the uh, paper is a quote from John Donne that no man is an island. Mm -hmm. And we generalize it to our framework and say no economy is an island, that the sufferings of other countries is going to affect you as well. And the connections, the trade connections uh, that you have is going to lead to costs that you will have to bear because of your uh, locally uh, focused decisions.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much. This has really been a very uh, eye-opening and helpful uh, discussion. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to say thanks to Selva Demiraut and Sevjan Yeshiltas for sharing their insights about the costs to the world economy, that is to say to us, uh, of not vaccinating everybody on the planet and how we're going to maybe achieve that goal. Uh, Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple podcasts. I want to thank the Otto and Fran Walter Foundation for its support for our Europe related programming. I also want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks. Thank you.